You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. But it's so good to be here with you guys this morning. Welcome for those joining online. And uh, as I think most of you know, we're we're doing a Madison Multiply uh, preaching series. Uh, And for uh, some of you may be thinking, okay, Houston last week, me this week, and Zach's next week. So, like, what is Madison Multiply Preaching Series? Uh, just the way things lined up this year for us at the Vine. But uh, three of us as churches um, uh, have formed kind of a, a network of really wanting to see, uh, having this vision of seeing gospel-centered, gospel-proclaiming churches all across Madison. That by God's mercy, we would see in every pocket, every neighborhood, Uh, gospel-proclaiming, faithful gospel-proclaiming churches all across our city. We're not looking to be the biggest silo, the biggest show in town. We're looking for faithfulness um, to to proclaim God's word in in his gospel. And so uh, that's what we are as Madison Multiply. Uh, That's what you are a part of by default, of being part of the Vine Church. Um, And so every August, we've kind of begun a new rhythm uh, where the pastors at Madison Multiply, uh, we kind of anchor ourselves in a a series, uh, and we share kind of uh, the preaching pulpit. Uh, And so later on, you'll hear from two pastors at Redeemer City. Uh, and this series, as, you, as we kicked off last week, as you probably know, uh, is it just entitled Life Together in Light of God's Mercies. Life Together in Light of God's Mercies. And as we discussed this preaching series, you know, back in the winter, we, we shared really this unified desire to see the gospel of Jesus transform each one of our churches. That we would be communities like striving together as God's people to grow in, in love and unity and holiness. And so intentionally sitting in Romans 12, one passage, we want this passage of scripture, Romans 12, to like, we, we deeply marinate our souls within it. As we observe and, and, and take in Paul's, really God's concrete instructions for how we, the church, the body of Christ, have been called to live. And specifically, you heard it last week, how we've been called towards hope and joy, right? Houston delivered that last week. And as we move forward in Romans, we'll see these messages of how we've been called to love one another, how we've been called to overcome evil, how we've been called towards humility, and this morning, today, how we've been called to live in abounding zeal. So let's pray again. Lord, we ask that you'd open your words to our heart and our heart to your word. Lord, we want to leave change by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I want to begin our time by reading a quote, and and this is probably familiar to to some of you, um, from theologian Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Years ago, wrote this. He said, the church, it's on the screen, the church is Jesus's final apologetic to the world, that the church is Jesus's final apologetic to the world. And if his assessment, which is based on scripture, if you read his article, is right, if he's right, let me ask, how is the church doing? How is the church doing? What would the world say about the church? Well, in this same article, Schaefer actually continues this thought by saying this, He says, Christians have not always presented a a pretty picture to the world. 
Too often they have failed to show the beauty of, of love and oneness of Christ and the holiness of God. And as a result, the world has turned away. And he says this, Must Christians continue to stand with arms folded, presenting to men and women a tarnished image of God, a shattered body of Christ? And I read this, and honestly, quite honestly, I'm frightened. Frightened that I could be found culpable of tarnishing the very image of God. That I could be presenting to the city I love, Madison, the shattered body of Christ. And so let's bring that larger question a little bit nearer and just ask the question of what would Madison, our fellow citizens, what would they say about the church? What would Madison say about the vine? Would those in our city look at the vine and, and be confused in like a good sense of like, how can such a people, diverse and different from one another, be united in love and mercy and care towards one another? Would they see these like tangible outward evidences of the gospel in action? Would they observe that? Or would they look upon our church and just kind of shrug their shoulders like, well, this kind of looks and feels like any other social club that just so happens to meet on Sundays like a church. And, and if church is a, a social club, man, I can think of a lot of other clubs I'd rather be a part of, right? See, friends, I am convinced of this, that the message and the power of the gospel compels us, the body of Christ, the church, to be a community far more attractive and far more valuable than any community our world has to offer. In fact, I believe this, that the church, you and I, by the power of the Spirit, if we live out Romans 12 to the fullest, people in our community would be beating down our doors trying to get in. I believe that. So turn with me to Romans 12 if you're not there already. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. Feel free to pick that up. Romans 12, our verse isn't very long. But our big idea is this, that in light of God's mercies, that in light of God's mercies, we live passionately for Jesus. In light of God's mercies, we live passionately for Jesus. And our direction is threefold this morning. One, I want us to see our intensity. Our intensity. Secondly, we want to see our focus. And then lastly, our fuel. That's our direction. Intensity, focus, and fuel. And if you know me, is it any wonder that I got assigned zeal? Let's go. Our intensity... Paul very plainly lays it out in verse 11 by saying this, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. And the way I see the beginning of this verse, I see, I see a negative form of Paul really saying the same thing that he says in the positive form. So negatively, he says, what, don't be slothful, right? Right? And positively, he says, be fervent. And I think, really, he's just saying one singular thing, which I just say in my own words, live passionately. Live passionately. That that is our intensity to live passionately. Not slothful, but fervent. Not slothful, 
but fervent. And since we only have a few words, we've got to take a closer look at these phrases. First, not slothful. Well, if you're like me, as I began looking at this last week, I knew one thing about sloths. Sloths are slow. So you ask me, well, how slow are they? Great question. Sloths are slower than snails. They're slower than tortoises. And I fact-check this. You can fact-check me. Sloths are the slowest, now this is important, slowest mammal in the world. Sloths are the slowest mammal in the world. Topping out, we've all been watching the Olympics, right? At these people just running blazing speeds. But this is, this is the speed uh, 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 of a sloth. They, they top out at .003 miles per hour, right? So every, every foot, you know, as painful as this is, that, that, that might have taken me three minutes. Top speed, right? That's the speed, top speed of a sloth. Well, James Garcia is here, and he likes to do trivia nights. So, Sloth 101, for the next trivia night, here you go. Take it for what it's worth, but sloths are interesting. Sloths eat, sleep, mate, and give birth in trees. In fact, they spend over 90% of their time hanging upside down in a tree. Crazy. I didn't know this. Sloths are completely blinded in daylight. So this doesn't go well for a mama sloth caring for her little, right? Maybe great for the baby, just kind of doing whatever they want, but not so great for the mom. Check this out. Sloths eat leaves because they live in trees, right? And they don't do much of anything else. So they eat the leaves, but they don't eat too many because it takes 30 days to digest one leaf. 30 days, one leaf. Okay. Sloths' lifestyles are so sedentary... This is so quite crazy. Some of you probably know this. They're so sedentary. They're like, they don't move. That because, and because of that, algae or moss from the trees actually grows on their fur. Isn't that wild? But this is actually to their advantage. Because they, as you know, like they, they can't run away from predators, right? They have no ability to protect themselves. So their only way in which to survive in the wild is to not move and hide themselves under this camouflage in the trees. That's the way they work. And if you're curious, I won't say it in this space. You can Google their bathroom behaviors. It's, it's interesting. So what did we learn? What did we learn? Besides those on your phone looking, Googling sloths bathroom behaviors, we know, we see you. Well, we learned one thing, that sloths are fascinating, right? Top 10 most fascinating creatures, hands down. But secondly, and the, and the point of what Paul is saying here is this, that sloths are energy-saving mammals, Sloths are energy-saving mammals. Are sloths lazy as we, you know, come to know them, right? Are they lazy? Sure. Are they sluggish? Yeah. Are they lacking in energy? Yes. But they are all these things for a reason. See, sloths intentionally live life at a slow place in order to survive. They need that moss to grow on them, so they purposely slow down in life. See, it's more than just being slow. It's this desire to want to be slow. It's a mindset. It's an approach to life, to intentionally live life in this sluggish, like, shuffling of the feet, barely moving way that Paul is saying, do not be slothful. It's a mindset. Don't be slothful. 
And specifically, as we look at verse 11, don't be slothful in what? Don't be slothful in zeal. And zeal, it's, it's at least a word I don't use in my everyday uh, vocabulary. And so I went to Webster, and he defines zeal as a great energy or a great enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. So it's a great energy, a great enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. And for this, I think of the Deer District, right? The Bucks' latest run to the championship, you know, the other, the other week. We probably all saw the photos. Maybe some of you were there, no doubt. Some of you might have been there. But 50, 70, 100,000 people like packed into the downtown district of Milwaukee, right? They, they have this incredible zeal, zeal, this great energy and enthusiasm to witness their team, the Bucks, win a championship for the first time in 50 years. If they were my team, I'd be there too, right? That's zeal. Like standing in the heat of summer for hours with 50,000 other sweaty human beings. I didn't see a bathroom in those photos. There's no quick exit out of the fray. Like they're in it for the long haul. That is zeal, great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. Now, whether it's zeal for the bucks or not, we all have zeal in our life. Many of you are pursuing PhDs or some sort of academic pursuit at the university. Right? You have zeal to, to accomplish something academically. Many of us in our work, in our vocations, we have promotions, our objectives, our goals. Right, We have zeal to be good workers. We have zeal. I know many of you are runners or swimmers. We have zeal in, in our athletic pursuits and so on and so on. And these are good things. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But here in verse 11, Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. And in Romans 12 on matters that relate to truth and life of Jesus, which is the context, as we will see, the context of this zeal is to the truth and life of Jesus. Our mindset, Paul says, is not to be that like that of a sloth, then not to be intentionally lagging behind, shuffling our feet, intentionally slow, lacking energy, like this deflated enthusiasm for the cause of Christ. That's not to be our mindset when it comes to matters of truth and life of Jesus. Don't be slothful in zeal, that's image one, but be fervent, be fervent. And this is the second image Paul gives us. And this word fervent actually means quite literally to boil over, to boil over. And I think of all the times I make mac and cheese for my kiddos. And, you know, maybe your story is like mine. Step one, you know, you fill a pot with water, check. Step two, place it on a hot stove, check. Step three, forget that you have a pot of hot water on the stove, check. Happens every time, right? And you know how the story goes. Like you literally have a hot mess because the water is boiling over the pot and it's everywhere on the floor on the stove. Actually, just this week, actually yesterday, my wife said, if you put a wooden uh, spoon over the hot pot, it won't boil over. I never knew that. Maybe I should have. But there's, maybe that's your takeaway. <laughs> but this boiling over, like that of a hot pot, that is our intensity. That's the image that Paul has for us. That that's our intensity towards God and to his mission should be like this uncontrollable boiling over water. This, this boiling over with great ferocity spilling out to everyone and to everything in our lives. And we couldn't have two completely different images, could we? A sloth 
and a boiling over pot of water. Both expressing the singular idea, live passionately. Don't be slothful, shuffling your feet, painfully slow. Be fervent, be boiling over with uncontrollable ferocity. Last week, my family had a four-day excursion to Michigan, the, the west side by like Holland with Emily's family. Excuse me, with Emily's family, and it was fantastic. It's a great trip. And day one of our trip, after we get to Michigan, we're at the Airbnb with her family. All of a sudden, like the battery light indicator comes on on our van dashboard. And being who I am, I go to say to Emily, "Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. It doesn't mean anything. It's a fluke. It will go off. It will go away. Let's enjoy our time in Michigan." So that's day one, right? We're in Michigan. We're there. Fast forward now to five minutes before we're set to return home to McFarland, Madison, right? And the light's still on. And so I think to myself, well, maybe I should call my mechanic, you know, peace of mind, that it's okay. Just get confirmation on that. So I explain the situation. I call back here to Madison. And he says, no, get it looked at. Do not drive home. I trust this guy. And he, it turns out he's right. Our alternator is broken. But, but here we are, right? We're all packed up. We've checked out of our Airbnb. We're at this park. You know, like, if we have three kids. You, you have kids, like, you, you know, like, our van is, like, stuffed full of things. We don't have a place to go. Our, it's nap time. The kids are getting cranky. We're in this foreign land of Michigan. It's not a great spot to be in, right? And yet Emily's brother-in-law is from this area. So we call his parents and we're like, can you give us some help? <laughs> you know? Uh, and within minutes, this is a true story, I'm not lying. Within minutes of this phone call, they've called their own mechanic that they use and, and they get us an appointment. Whereas every other place that I've called was like, well, we can get you in next week. You know, that's like, that's not good, right? We're, we need to go home. They, they'd given us their AAA details in case we needed a tow, in case the situation arose to that. They, they'd, they'd already put bed sheets into the washer, the dryer, and they've already communicated, like, you can stay as long as you need. They, they begin to, like, tell us what food they have, and they can get the grill going with chicken, like dinner plans are being made. And as we pull into the driveway, there's snacks. There's, there's special little toys for our girls who are tired, you know, and weary of this travel, right? And there's towels of, like, in the kind of the smile, like, hey, the pool open like you can enjoy yourself and when we did finally leave they, they gathered us into a circle in their driveway and they prayed for our journey home they prayed for us as parents they prayed for our relationship with God they prayed for our marriage and as Emily and I drove away from this time we both just reflected man we've never felt more welcomed in our life unscheduled, unprompted, you know, visit with folks who barely know who we are. Like, we're in-laws of in-laws. We know each other through Facebook, right? We're not necessarily family. But this is what fervency, this boiling over, I think, looks like in action. What it looks like to, to boil over with this uncontrollable ferocity. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. You who've been placed in my life, that's just what I'm going to do. That's our intensity, to live passionately. You know, like when our phone buzzes, again, from the needs channel, from Slack, or the prayer and courage channel, again, it buzzes with a request. You know, what's our gut impulse? 
I think what Paul's saying, we don't just automatically clear it without reading it, but we read it. We, we consider how we might meet this need or how we might pray for this individual. It means we subscribe to these channels, right? It means that when we go to city group, which are our small groups, we intently come to, to lean in, to engage with those that God has placed in our family, to know them, to listen for ways of how can I be praying for you this week? How can I come alongside you and, and serve and, and care for you as a human being? And the same goes in our neighborhood, in our work, right? They're not just people we're passing through life with, but they've been, they've been brought into our life to, to love and to, to serve and to care for. Like that of a sloth, any sense of this like half-heartedness or this laziness, this, this sluggishness, as we read our Bibles, is actually really inappropriate as Christians. Why? Because being saved by Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. Amen? Because being saved by Jesus means you have eternal life, living forever in overwhelming joy. You will not die. And not to be passionate about this is a sign of serious spiritual blindness. Which is why Jesus spoke so strongly to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Many of you know this. He says, because you are what? Lukewarm. Not this boiling over ferocity, right? Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that's just a cleaned up version of Jesus really saying, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus looks at this church and says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And our bodies vomit, Dr. Anderson, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we really have one of two reasons, right? There's some sort of poison we need to expel or because there's something disgusting in our mouths. And lukewarm Christianity is disgusting to Jesus. And sadly, we often live in such an apathetic way in our nine-to-five lives that we confuse doing church like this, like one hour on Sunday mornings, is like us thinking we're doing this passionate thing for Jesus. But we must go to the glory and the hope of Scripture and allow His words to speak that zeal and passion and eagerness into our spirit. And so let me just ask you, do you have verses that, as you read scripture, that renew your spirit, that revive your soul? What verses do you cling to, to give you life? I think of Psalm 141, which says, my eyes are fixed upon God because he alone is my refuge. I think of Psalm 103, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him. And for moms and dads, for his righteousness extends even towards our children's children. Man, I love that promise. I've got to cling to that. I encourage you to find verses that speak life to you, that revive your soul, renew your passion, and to hang them in your, you know, the mirrors of your house or the dashboard of your cars. Write it out in your own handwriting and meditate on these things. That's our intensity, to live passionately. And secondly, our focus. Secondly, our focus. 
The second half of verse 11 says quite simply, serve who? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. You see, all this intensity has a focus, and it's Jesus. Jesus is who all this passion is for. But to to grab the, the fullest flavor of this focus, we need to understand something in our Bibles. As Paul here renders um, serve, um, or as Paul uses this word serve like in our English Bibles, because he actually uses three different Greek words that we all translate as serve in our English translations. So this is interesting and important, so hang with me. I automatically flicked to Matthew. What are the chances of that, huh? But Romans 12, I want you to see this with me because this is important. Of the word that he uses for serve in his language. So for the first, the first word of serve, we see in verse 1 of Paul using in, in the Greek word serve, that, which comes through to us as serve. He says in the latter half, uh, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual, the ESV renders it worship, which is your spiritual worship. Other translations will say, which is your spiritual service. So this is reverential service. We can think of like priests like bringing animals to the altar. We can think of altar boys like lighting the candle. Like this is reverential service in the temple or the church. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 1. But Paul's not saying that in our verse. Secondly, in verse 7, Paul again uses this word serve. He's talking about the spiritual gifts that we have as Christians. And he says, if your gift is service or to serve, then serve, right? And for this word, for Paul, it actually quite literally means to wait on tables like that of a waiter. So we think of a restaurant, right? We think of when we come to the restaurant, someone is literally going to wait on our practical needs. That's what he's saying there in verse 7. But that's not the word that he uses for us in verse 11. The word that he uses in verse 11 is a third word translated into our Bible as service, and it's the most intense form of service. It's slavery. It's slavery. You see, the emphasis, the focus, is that we see ourselves as slaves to Jesus. That we give total service to him having no other masters, fully rendering all of our lives to Jesus. And I get that if this language of slavery sounds harsh, I get it. Realize that if you're not a slave to Jesus in this context, then you're a slave of the devil and sin. And Jesus is a far more loving master, whereas the devil is a self-serving tyrant. It's far better to be enslaved to Jesus than to be enslaved to our sin and to Satan. And you see, understanding this focus, this emphasis, it helps color the the difference for how we think of this phrase of serving the Lord. That is that, like, in our apathetic, like, navel-gazing, default human uh, tendency, we typically confuse, like, serving the Lord as we think about it with that of volunteerism. I'm going to volunteer for the Lord. That's how we typically think about it. But there's a fundamental difference between volunteers and slaves, because volunteers, as we know, they, they choose when and how they serve. It's on their schedule. What is it, how does it fit into their life, right? That's volunteerism. But slaves are on call day and night. There's, there's no option to choose when they want to serve. That's what they do. And volunteers, they can't quit serving if they get tired. Slaves are slaves for life. And volunteers can have expectations, right? Right? Now, when I go volunteer my time, I I expect to be treated with respect. 
I expect proper working conditions. I expect to be honored for my service, right? But slaves have no rights. And remember who Paul wrote this letter to, right? Was it just to the lead pastor of Rome? No. Was it just to the ministry leaders? No. Paul wrote this letter to the entire church at Rome. You know, just as every body part, as Paul talks there in verses 4 through 8, has great importance in the overall flourishing of the human body, so too every member of the body of Christ, the church, you and I, have great importance in the overall flourishing of God's people. Meaning this, there's no such thing as a non-serving member of God's church. There's no such thing as a non-serving member of God's church. As slaves of Christ, we willingly offer total service to Jesus. Not just for an hour over here or for a dollar over there. But as Jesus literally laid down his life, laying aside everything as the God-man, right? We too, as part of God's family, lay down every right we think we possess. And we render it all in service to Jesus. And we do so with great zeal. With that enthusiasm, that boiling over passion and energy for the cause of Christ. And it's as we keep Jesus as our focus for for why we serve, for, for how we serve, for who we serve, we avoid three common ditches that each one of us can fall into as we think about Christian service. Ditch one, I'm often in this ditch, is serving yourself and not Jesus. Often we fall in this ditch of serving self and not Jesus. And Paul talks about it. It's on the screen. He says in in chapter 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So so here we have Paul like contrasting serving Jesus with serving your own like really lustful, sinful appetites. And tragically, we're all familiar, right, with the sensational um, uh, headlines of church leaders like satisfying these lustful, you know, appetites of, of power, of greed, of sexual fulfillment, rather than this genuine desire to lead and serve their entrusted flock, right? We've all seen those headlines. But there's also a more subtle snare for us of serving our own appetites. Such as the often used sales pitch for like gaining church volunteers. We've probably done it up here at the Vine. Like, hey, come serve in this way. You'll benefit a lot from it. You'll get more out of it than those you're serving, right? We're familiar with that line. And while there, there may be truth in that, the messaging behind it really speaks to the idolatrous desires of our hearts. That, that, that serving is all about me. That serving is what it fulfills for me because I love the feeling of being significant. I love the praise of others seeing me serve. I love the sense of being valued. Let me just say this. We should always take great joy in serving the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But we must constantly examine our heart motivations Are we serving Jesus? Or are we simply serving ourselves by fulfilling our own sinful heart idolatries? 
Serving self or serving Jesus. Ditch two is serving people, not Jesus. Serving people, not Jesus. And of course, we're called to serve people. We're called to serve one another. But there's a way in which we serve others that can sometimes be dead wrong. Paul, again, in Galatians says this, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? For if I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And the wrong way to serve people is just to be a slave to his or her approval around us. This is a bondage. This is a bondage to be a servant to the opinion of others. This is a bondage to live with this like eye on what others are thinking on of me. It's a bondage to be dependent upon the praise of others. And the kind of service that we've been called into by God is then of great liberty. For in service to Jesus, we have an audience of one, of Jesus. No one else. We're freed from the fickle opinions of men and women. Because we care for one thing. Does Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, approve of what I'm saying and doing? That's ditch two. And ditch three, serving our own salvation and not Jesus. Paul, again in Romans 7, says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What Paul is saying that Jesus, as he has come and and died and rose again, our focus is no longer to an obedience of a written law, but to a living person, Jesus. For Jesus now stands where the law once stood. Therefore, serving Christ, not the law, means believing who Jesus is and believing what he's already accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb. Therefore, my obedience is not to achieve or earn favor, but my obedience, and hear this, is a manner in which I respond in worship to what he's already provided for me. And again, this type of service is of great liberty. It frees us from this work-based idea of salvation to a freedom of eternal joy of service. And if we're honest, don't we all find ourselves in these ditches? Whether it's serving ourselves, whether it's serving others' approval, or serving to, to earn salvation. The wonderful news of the gospel says, repent. You're not too far in the ditch to get out. Repent, turn, believe, and begin anew. There are fresh mercies. A new day will dawn. But we need to be aware of where our heart is at. And to confess these things to Jesus and begin anew. Our intensity live passionately. Our focus is Jesus. And lastly, our fuel. Like how the heck do we go about sustaining this uncontrollable, boiling over ferocity to serve God? Just last week, we had a serve day for the kids at the basement, right? And it was awesome to go on this blitz of serving our city. And then I think about it, well, what does this look like every day, right? It's, it's easy to do it like a contained, like one day, like package serve, but... How do we do this in a way which is sustained over a lifetime? Well, again, Romans 12, verse 1. And, and all of us as pastors are going to go back to Romans 12, 1 because this is the hinge of everything we say. Houston said it last week. I'm going to say it again to you again. 
But Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, meaning all the things I've shared, chapters 1 through 11, because of the saving grace of Jesus, the gospel of God, this now is how you are called to respond. You are to respond by presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to talk just for a quick second, because if you're not familiar with your Bibles, this idea of living sacrifice is kind of weird, right? Like when we hear the word sacrifice, we're like, well, yeah, uh, it was a sacrifice to get out of bed and, you know, not continue rewatching the Olympics, right? Like I, I got out of bed, Jesus, like I'm doing it, I'm sacrificing, I'm doing it, I'm carrying my cross, Jesus, I'm doing it. That's how we kind of deem sacrifice, right? This small personal cost. But for Paul's readers, they'd hear this differently. They'd hear the word sacrifice and immediately think death. Because this is temple language, language that spoke to the reality that animals were placed on the the altar to be slaughtered, to bleed, to, to, to die. Sacrifice equated to death, yet here Paul makes a case for a living sacrifice. And for their ears, that's an oxymoron because sacrifice meant death, so how could there be a living sacrifice? Let me ask you, who was sacrificed? This is not a true question, but who was sacrificed, put to death for the sake of others and yet lives? Jesus. Someone said it. You see, Paul borrows this temple language to show that the new pattern of how we are to live is to be patterned after Jesus. That is, all you who are followers of Jesus, the body of Christ, are to be a living sacrifice. The fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked by the fuel of what has already been done. It all goes back to the gospel. As Martin Luther famously said, to progress in the Christian life is to always begin again. To progress in the Christian life is always to begin again. So we begin again at the gospel. And the message of the gospel says that we were dead in our sins, but have been made alive to God. And having been made alive to God, we no longer pattern our lives, we no longer conform our lives to the things of this world, but we've been transformed, made alive to the things of God, offering to him our entire lives, that be it the ordinary mundane nine to five office hours at work or the high church stuff we do on Sunday mornings, every moment of my life, every instrument of my body, I use in total service this boiling over passion to serve and love as Jesus has served and loved me, my Redeemer and friend. The fuel, the power, the reason we live passionately is the gospel, period. And it's a fuel, I want you to catch this, it's a fuel so powerful that what we know about this Roman church, divisions between Jew and Gentile, that even a divided, multi-ethnic church can be united together in such love and passion for one another. I think we lose that as we read through Romans. That this is a divided, multi-ethnic church. And Paul calls them back to the gospel as their fuel. To live united in love and passion for one another. Fulfilling the mission of God. And it's as we work out this gospel as a church family, the vine, together, as brothers and sisters, that the watching world, our city of Madison, sees the beauty of Jesus. 
And so as we move through Romans, as we've already heard last week, remember this calling to live passionately for Jesus because this principle has to be colored onto every other set of instruction that Paul gives. So when, when, when Houston says last week that we're called to this like persistent joy, we do so with passion. That as we hear in future weeks that we're called to love one another, we do so with this abounding zeal. Then we're called to, to overcome evil. We do so with this like quick obedience and, and passion and desire. Then we're called towards humility. We do so with this boiling over ferocity. That in light of God's mercies, we live passionately for Jesus. Amen? Father God, we come to you in worship and, and thanksgiving for the message and the power of the gospel. You came to save us. Lord, we thank you for the passion that you demonstrated for us on the cross. That though you are God, you humbled yourself to save and redeem for yourself a people. And Lord, in light of those mercies, Lord, would you help us by the power of your spirit and word to make us a people that live passionately for you in every moment of our lives and every instrument of our bodies. Lord, we want to honor you and live rightly. Help us, Lord. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen.